0: Well, ladies and gentlemen, a very uh, warm welcome to this and the uh, latest uh, um, in our Perspectives on Europe series of public lectures, which the LSE European Institute uh, organises in partnership with um, APCO Worldwide, our sponsors. Now, it is, of course, a commonplace that uh, the shift in economic power uh, that we're seeing from west to east, and particularly to China, is not only an evidential fact... Clearly, it is an evidential fact, but that it is also bound to translate over time into a shift in geopolitical power and influence to the disadvantage uh, of the West. Much of the way that challenge is being played out in the press, as you'll have seen, is uh, it's it's being dramatized around themes like a new scramble for Africa, uh, the need to draw China into a more productive uh, dialogue on things like human rights um, and climate change, and also shaping common approaches to regional uh, issues, uh, regional challenges such as Iran, Burma, uh, Sudan, North Korea and so on. And of course, these are hugely important and pressing issues uh, on which Western policymakers have actually been engaged with Chinese policymakers with their counterparts for quite a long time. But some of the most interesting questions about uh, China's rise, I think, have yet to be fully. Uh, explored, and these go beyond questions about how China will play its hand uh, on the UN Security Council or on world trade in world trade talks, for example. They extend to the very nature of the post war international order and the liberal and political and economic principles which underpin it um, and the sort of questions we 're starting to ask ourselves um, are will for example, will economic might increasingly trump political principle in world affairs, to the extent political principle has a part to play in world affairs. Uh, Will China's rise breathe new life into good old-fashioned realpolitik and the principle of non-interference in the affairs of sovereign states? And as the euro lurches from crisis to crisis, will he who pays the piper soon be calling the tune? And more questions. Questions like uh, whether amidst conditions of economic uncertainty, fears about identity and security, uh, is there even a risk that the Chinese model of authoritarian capitalism uh, could actually start to look rather attractive to Western publics? Or will China, on the other hand, will China have to accommodate itself to the march of democracy and demands for more participation and accountability, such as we're seeing in the Middle East? Well, Our guest today, Mark Leonard, has been giving such questions uh, much thought, and he has been, as I'm sure you know, one of the most interesting and and arresting voices in the European uh, debate for many years, and his output, I'm sure, will be known to many of you. Uh, It includes uh, why Europe will run the 21st century, Uh, more recently, what does China think, and of course Mark has a very regular presence in the international press and the international broadcast uh, media. Well, having first cut a dash um, at the think tank Demos uh, at an improbably uh, early age, uh, it has to be said, um, and much to his credit, he was subsequently Director of the Foreign Policy Centre and then Director of Foreign Policy at the Centre for European Reform. And since 2007, he has been Director of the European Council on Foreign Relations, a think tank which uh, goes from strength to strength and of which he is a founder. Now, Mark will uh, talk for, I'm not sure, 25, 30 minutes, perhaps something like that. And then, as per LSE practice, uh, he will be happy to field questions, and I'm sure you won't be shy in coming forward with those. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Mark Leonard. And I should, just, I should just say, because we're asked to tell you this these days, that they, there is a Twitter hashtag for this event, which is hash LSEChinaProof. Proof, LSE China Proof. Uh, in one word.
1: Thank you very much, Maurice. It's uh, it's a huge pleasure to be here um, at the LSE, particularly in this room where I think I uh, well, uh, was privileged enough to speak at launch events for both of my books, so um, the China and the Europe one, so it's great to be back in this room as well as back in this august institution. Um, My starting point is really a a question. Um, One of the many distinguished professors at at LSE, uh, Mick Cox, has uh, made something of a living uh, promoting um, EH Carr's seminal work on the the 20-year crisis, which shows how the liberal powers squandered their victory in 1919 by failing to adapt to a changing world. And for the last few years, I've been wondering whether today's West is suffering from a 20-year crisis of its own. Of course, uh, 2009 was not 1939. There is no prospect, I hope, of a a major war in Europe or in the world. And the financial crisis has not yet reaped the havoc of the the Great Depression. But the analogy of the 20-year crisis I think does function in quite a fundamental way, which is that the liberal orders in 1919 thought that they were at the centre of the world, that uh, the future would be defined by them, and they were completely taken by surprise by the economic resurgence of authoritarian regimes and the impact that they had on the European and on the global order. And I think the if we look at the West after 1989, there are some very powerful analogies. We thought then that history was on our side, that the world was cheering us on, and I think that one of the most inspiring stories in the history of human affairs is the way that over the last 20 years, we've seen the creation of a European-inspired legal order inside the shell of the American security order. And Uh, the birth of a completely different kind of liberal order. People talk about a Western liberal order in the context of the institutions that the United States uh, drove the creation of after the Second World War, the Bretton Woods institutions and others, but they were essentially Westphalian institutions. What's been remarkable about the the post-Cold War era is that Europeans have have driven the creation of a completely different kind of uh, institutional order that gives much greater sway to individual rights to institutionalised cooperation, to an idea of security based on legal interdependence and pooling sovereignty to deal with common problems. But I think it's that order now which is is under threat, because 1989 didn't just open the door for the end of the Cold War and the creation of this new liberal order. It also made possible a surge in globalisation and an incredible shift in economic power from West to East uh, which has also driven shifts in in the military balance of power as as rising powers could afford uh, greater technologies and also political uh, power. And this uh, ending of the historical anomaly of of, of the uh, advances which Western powers made as a result of their early industrialization has sowed the seeds for what is becoming not just a multipolar world in economic and political terms, but one in the the realm of ideas as well. And we have seen over the last decade that the European attitudes, which had so much impact in the first decade after the end of the Cold War on sovereignty, human rights, intervention, um, we've seen those ideas struggling to, to gain ground in the International Court of Public Opinion. The the Western liberal order has obviously faced all sorts of different threats over the years, but they've mainly been asymmetrical ones from populist states like Cuba and Venezuela, non-state actors like Al-Qaeda. And at times, China and Russia and other powers have acted as spoilers within uh, the, the Western system. But I think what is different about today is that we are now actually seeing not an asymmetric but a conventional threat to that order and that conventional threat uh, is coming at a time when the liberal order is being quite profoundly threatened by changes within the west the big change in the world is what i would like to call the rise of post-colonial superpowers The old divisions uh, within the world were between uh, a poor third world and a first world that had the money, the technology and a privileged role in the major institutions which allowed it to shape not just uh, how the world was was run but the ideas and the the norms which uh, governed its uh, everyday operations. And if the closing of the Cold War signalled the end of the the second world, I think the collapse of Lehman Brothers has precipitated the end of the third world. So that this relationship has been fundamentally recast, no longer between rich and poor, but between an ageing establishment and a collection of of challengers who who don't accept the uh, the the existing order. I think that what's striking about all of the rising powers of the 21st century, China, India, Brazil, is that they are relatively new states which were forged by movements of national liberation. And this has had a very dramatic impact on their attitude towards sovereignty. Their experience of globalisation has been completely bound up with their new sense of, of, of nationhood. So for the West globalization has been uh, destroying its sovereignty and changing their attitudes towards international cooperation. But for these former colonies, it's actually created sovereignty on a scale that they never experienced before and gave them a degree of control over their lives and uh, over the world that surrounds them, which was unthinkable before this turbocharged globalization became a reality for them. And I think that that surge in, in economic power is, is also leading to a fundamental questioning of the, the Western rules of the road. Um, so in my talk today, I want to, to divide it into two parts. The first part, I'd like to delve a bit deeper into because everyone talks about a power shift from, from west to east, and I'd like to delve a bit deeper and look at four of the key dimensions of uh, this challenge uh, to, to the Western order. And then in the second part of my remarks, I want to talk briefly about what some of the implications could be for Europe and the way that we think about uh, the preservation, the extension, and the uh, the, the management of, of of the liberal order. So I'll start with uh, some, thing, some thoughts on the power shift. I think people have focused a lot uh, on the statistics involved in the shift in, in economic and political power. But... The power of the secret of, of liberal universalism has been that it was its dirty secret was that it was based on a, a much on some raw power which happened across various different dimensions. So a fantastic uh, typology which was created by Michael uh, Barnett and Raymond Duval, who who identified four major types of power in international relations, which I think correspond roughly in IR terms to to Waltz, Kehane, Wallerstein, and Foucault. But they talk about compulsory power, economic and military resources, institutional power, the design of international institutions, structural power, constitutions of of social capacities in the the capitalist world economy, uh, and productive power, the ability to shape identities and subject positions. I think if you look at across each of those four dimensions of power, you're seeing that the Western hegemony which did so much to make Western values universal is being fundamentally challenged. Coercive power... Uh, is the most obvious one this is the one which has uh, spoken about the most i won 't spend too much time on it but but there is clearly a new economic and military and political map of the world emerging. this is the the most basic dimension of power the ability to to bribe or coerce other countries to do what you want them to do and I think it, it's quite clear that two thousand and eight and the financial crisis has accelerated. Uh, a long-running uh, shift of power along a number of different dimensions. But as I said, it is pretty familiar ground, so I'm not going to dwell too much on it. But maybe highlight a few themes. One is, is the uh, thing which I think is accelerating uh, this shift is, is, uh, is growth rates. Um, foreign policymakers have, I think, at least since the, the onset of the Great Recession, been gripped by what Amory Slaughter has called uh, rather vividly a Wall Street mentality. And what she means by that is that in financial markets, the big profits to be made are from investing in flows rather than in stocks. So attention is naturally focused on countries which have the highest growth rates. And since the beginning of the Great Recession, I think politics has followed... Economics and foreign policy makers have, haven't looked at the traditional metrics of geopolitical power the size of gdp military spending technology human capital but instead been rather captivated by the rate of growth uh, in different parts of the world which has meant that they discount the power of europe and of, of established powers and, and actually accentuate the power of of, of rising uh, powers because Uh, If you don't have a uh, double-digit growth rate or something near it, you've almost been written off as a serious player in the the last few years. If you look at the amount of attention which the um, uh, State Department devotes to to Turkey, it's as much as the 27 member states of the European Union in their bureau. It's quite a remarkable thing. And that is clearly not to do with the fact that Turkey has more uh, wealth, more weapons. More military spending than the twenty seven members of the eu um, so uh, the second thing obviously currency reserves there uh, 's been a long standing debate about america 's role as uh, sorry china 's role as america 's banker and, and now uh, we have this new debate about whether china can can save the eurozone um, and the third kind of thing which is uh, very dramatic about this is the the ch- shift in economic geography. China's role in Africa, Morris talked about that before, has made long made Western conditionality impossible. Uh, China is now a bigger client to Saudi Arabia than the US, but, and even in places like Moldova, uh, poor Moldova on Europe's fringes, um, uh, China is throwing around billions of of euros, which are undermining the EU's ability to. To have an influence on a country that's practically inside the European Union already. It's on the borders of, a, of an EU member state. And on the military side, you've had similar kind of flows where over the last two years, uh, defense spending by NATO's European members has shrunk by about $45 billion, which is roughly the equivalent of Germany's entire defense budget. And this has happened at a time when uh, India and China have. Uh, well, where China has, has tripled its defense expenditure over a decade, and India has raised it by 60% in, in that same period. So that's the, the first dimension, but that's very familiar. The second dimension is maybe a bit less uh, well documented, but is the idea of institutional power. And there, I think that the West's creation and dominance of global institutions has been a core feature of, of its power um, since, uh, well, Uh, and also of the the liberal order which I described. But this is beginning to change in a number of ways as well. The most visible one from a European perspective is the shift from a G8 where EU members held half the seats to a G20 where uh, they have only uh, a quarter of the seats and many people still think it's uh, it's too many. In fact, one of the striking things about the G20 is that it agrees on so little that it's... it's, uh, Uh, that one of the only uh, things which seems to unite its members is a sense that Europe is is overrepresented in it. And uh, after the initial fanfare of the London and Pittsburgh conferences when lots of the members shared their plans for stimulus activities, I think some of the only successes that the G20 has chalked up have been bullying Europeans to give up seats at the IMF and spooking the markets over the the Euro crisis. Uh, But uh, I think beyond that shift from the G8 to the G20 um, and the the, the kind of bullying of Europeans on on various different issues and the concerted way that that the US and China and other powers have have worked uh, together on this, actually, um, is uh, also what the G20 stands for, which is, in a way... uh, it's a symbol of global governments increasingly being wielded within informal institutions which are governed by a global balance of economic power, rather than treaty-based institutions that pull sovereignty. I know in theory the G20 is just meant to be a convening committee and that all of the implementation will be done by the, by the treaty-based institutions, um, but in practice, Uh, its emergence has coincided with a period where these treaty-based institutions uh, have have been weaker than they have been for for, for many years. Um, And I I think that uh, it's worth dwelling on on the weakening of those institutions because until recently, Western capitals had hoped that integrating rising powers like China into global institutions would encourage... uh, Uh, Beijing and other capitals to identify their interest with the preservation of the international system. This was memorably summed up in uh, Bob Zelik's phrase about China becoming a responsible stakeholder. But uh, And the, the argument which they made was that if we don't open the existing order to Chinese participation, China will try and overthrow it and develop an alternative order of its own. We had this binary choice. Unfortunately, I've yet to meet a Chinese person who Uh, views its uh, choice about what to do in international institutions as a binary one between joining them and adopting all the rules and the norms of those institutions or overthrowing them and developing an alternative structure. Seen from Beijing, uh, China has always sought to take full advantage of uh, any of the openings within the existing order whilst simultaneously doing everything it could to minimise its contribution to those institutions and to protect its own freedom of manoeuvre. And as a result, rather than being transformed by the global institutions, as many Western statesmen and women and uh, and academics uh, would have hoped, what we're seeing is that China's sophisticated multilateral diplomacy is actually changing that global order itself. And in fact, in in many ways, in a more dramatic way than the way that China has has adapted its uh, its stance to those institutions. And there are three kind of key elements of this multilateral diplomacy, which which, uh, uh, are clear if if you look at Chinese behavior. The first, I think, is to play an increasingly active role within institutions like the WTO and the United Nations, and to use that to minimize the constraints on Chinese sovereignty. And central to that has been Chinese attempts to build up political coalitions within those institutions. Um, We've done some research at ECFR uh, looking at how votes within the United Nations on human rights issues have changed over the last uh, few years. If you go back to 1999, China won 43% of the votes on on human rights issues in the United Nations compared to uh, Europe's 78%. But 10 years later, in 2009, the EU won 52% compared to China's 82%. So you can see there's been a, a direct uh, switching of, 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 of positions. But in parallel with playing a more activist role within the institutions and organizing its coalitions more effectively, China has also created its own minilateral institutions outside of the, the Western-led order. Uh, most famously, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization in Central Asia with the, with the Russians and uh, the East Asian community in its own neighborhood which was designed partly to reassure its neighbors of of its own peaceful intent, but also to shut the United States out of the region's development and to put Japan in uh, a position that uh, one of my Chinese friends compares to that of the UK within Europe, where uh, it finds that it has one hand tied behind its it's back because of its loyalty to to the United States and is therefore not able to be a full-throated uh, driver of, of, of Asian integration, uh, and uh, that does seem to have been a deliberate uh, calculation uh, of the Chinese. The third strand, um, I think, has been to try and lessen uh, international pressure on China's Chinese client states like North Korea and Burma by creating Chinese-led multilateral fora like the Six Party Talks, which give it both an ability to control and to uh, minimise the pressure from outside whilst uh, protecting its clients from from excessive uh, intrusion by the international community. I think if you look at all of this in the round, since the 1990s, China has followed a pragmatic strategy of trying an equal measure to avoid confrontation uh, whilst uh, equally trying to avoid taking on additional international burdens and it's adopted an approach of what could be called defensive multilateralism joining global institutions in order to protect Chinese interests but not supporting the broader goals of the institutions themselves and this has meant that through its activity within these institutions we've seen a gradual gradual hollowing out of the liberal components and uh, norms of those institutions so that the form seems to remain the same, but the the content of of, uh, of of everyday life in those institutions has moved away from that exciting uh, post westphalian shift that we saw in the in the 1990s and until recently uh, the West was reasonably comfortable with that because China was not an overly disruptive force. China did exercise its power very cautiously, for example in the u n security council would often Complain, but then abstain in the end rather than voting against Western resolutions, uh, resolutions unless they touched on on core Chinese interests. Part of the problem in the last couple of years has been that China's definition of its core interests uh, has grown uh, as its power has grown and its global footprint has, has grown. And uh, China has also overreached in a number of ways, particularly in its region, but also in international fora like in Copenhagen. Um, and uh, people, therefore, did become more worried about the Chinese position and started to, to find ways of counterpunching. But China has uh, managed to, to modulate its, uh, its foreign policy and to, to, to lower the temperature um, uh, before the international community has, uh, has uh, actually developed any real strategic response to, 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 to China's multilateral diplomacy. Um, And I think what's true of China is increasingly true of other emerging powers. While the the West um, thought that it could use global institutions to contain and to manage and to channel the rise of China and India and Brazil and other global institutions uh, in the UN, the IMF, the G20, it's clear that the BRICS see these institutions uh, as mechanisms for, for containing, managing, channeling uh, the West. And it's very interesting to look at how the Russians and the Chinese have played Darfur or Syria at the UN, and how many of the BRICS are now arguing that aid to the European Union should go through the IMF and that the EU should be bound by the strictures of the IMF, um, in the way that, uh, which, which is the kind of mirror image of European use of the IMF during the Asian financial crisis and, and other. Uh, uh, problems when we used the IMF to exert power over other parts of the world, and I think that the BRICS arguably see the West's reliance on these institutions as a sign of weakness, which which could be uh, exploited. Um, <clears throat> the third dimension is, is uh, that of structural power, which um, uh, where we can see that the the old colonizer colonized relationship has morphed over time into a new one based on a structural relationship of the globalizers and the globalized. And for the rising powers of the last 20 years, the only thing worse than being exploited by Western capital was the threat of of not being exploited by it. And this lent the West a a degree of structural power because we could act as gatekeepers to the institutions and clubs of the capitalist world, from the WTO to to global financial centers. Uh, But what we're seeing now increasingly is that the the boot is on the other foot. The story of the last few days has been about whether Chinese capital could save the Eurozone, and although the amounts of money which China has uh, actually spent in its bond diplomacy have been very small, the dynamics of this structural economic relationship, I think, have been transformed beyond recognition. People used to see emerging powers as sources of cheap labor and sites for investment, but now they're defined as much by their accumulation of of, of, uh, capital and foreign reserves. And in the last uh, few years, beleaguered European economies have been competing to get Beijing to buy bonds, to invest in their companies, to build infrastructure at cut prices, and newspapers uh, have daily stories about uh, deals which have been uh, done, $4 billion for a port in Greece, $5 billion for Spain when, when Chinese visitors uh, uh, went to Madrid. And some of my colleagues at ECFR have written, I, I think, a very interesting paper on this, which was uh, w- which talks about this as, as China's scramble for Europe. But it's actually not just China's scramble. There's also an Indian scramble, a Brazilian scramble. And uh, lots of investors are, are looking to pick up deals across Europe. And this has meant that the West's political approach to these parts of the world has, has, has been uh, somewhat... Uh, changed in the days when Jacques Chirac and Tony Blair used to go to China, they often used to lecture them about their approach to climate change, trade, and other kinds of issues. Now, the competition is to see how many uh, deals can be signed uh, on on these trips. Sarkozy uh, uh, was very proud uh, to welcome Hu Jintao to Paris and 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 have a party to celebrate the 16 billion euros of of deals which he could pick up. When David Cameron became Prime Minister, his first uh, job was to lead a delegation to Delhi to try and woo Indian investment. And um, in line with this shift in capital, we're also seeing how uh, the economic philosophies and the rules of the road are are changing as a result of the fact that uh, this portion of the global GDP, which uh, is... um, uh, made up of, of, of economies that, could, that are practicing some kind of state capitalism is now almost as big as that which are, are defined by liberal economics, and that is having quite a profound impact on the on the nature of economic power. In the 1990s, people said that economics would replace war as the other means by which uh, politics uh, is expressed. And uh, I, there was a fantastic article by Edward Lutvak in uh, 1990, which argued that war between major powers would be off the agenda and that the world would move from classical geopolitics to an era of geoeconomics. And he foresaw the tools of geopolitics changing um, and uh, a new world where disposable capital would count in lieu of firepower, civilian innovation in lieu of military te- technical advancement, market penetration in lieu of bases and garrisons, But though the tools would be unrecognisable, he said that the purposes would not not be, uh, that the world would would not be governed by the logic of commerce, but rather the logic of conflict, which is adversarial and zero-sum. No sooner had he written this article than uh, Yugoslavia started uh, to collapse, war erupted in the Balkans. You then had 9-11, and it looked like he was completely wrong. But actually... Um, if you look at the world today it does feel very much like the world that Lutvak described where war between the great powers does seem very difficult to imagine and where the primary competition is between these big uh, economic uh, blocks anyway so that, that brings me to the fourth dimension and I'll try and do the rest of this a bit more quickly because I realise I've been speaking for a, a long time already but the fourth dimension is the, the shift in, in productive power and this is kind of powers maybe the most profound. It's the ability to shape identities and norms to decide what's right, what's wrong, and what's important. And for many years, Westerners uh, have assumed the, the right to define what's responsible to judge the behavior of others against benchmarks that we set. But I think there's uh, maybe been too much of an assumption that people listen to us because of the inherent wisdom of our... Uh, thinking rather than because of the power of our uh, coercive might, our control of the institutions, and our control of of, of, of global capital. And uh, what we're seeing is that as these other kinds of power started to shift, governments and peoples in other countries have been very quick to also question this fourth dimension of of Western power. In China, intellectuals have, for the last generation have been calling for. Uh, what they call a second liberation of thought. They claim that China needs now to free itself from an adherence to Western thinking in the same way that Deng Xiaoping helped free China from a blind adherence to to Marxist-Leninist thinking. And uh, I think uh, that it's difficult not to see uh, Chinese development and the debates that they've had over the last uh, 20 years as a kind of emancipation from, from Western thinking. But for me, the most striking manifestation of this shift in, in productive power came with the, the Arab uprisings uh, earlier this year. Much of the rhetoric in the West after uh, Tunisia and then Egypt uh, threw off their authoritarian regimes implied that a, a Berlin Wall had collapsed in the middle of the Mediterranean and that these countries were basically embracing Western values and trying to join the West. But what was striking, I think, was ha- that whereas after 1989, democratization and westernization seemed to march together hand in hand, with countries finding a right to define their identities and, to, and, and their futures, uh, choosing to, to join the West. Um, in the Arab world, uh, we saw these two marching in opposite directions, just as these countries In many ways, the best way of understanding what went on was to see it as a a sort of second uh, process of decolonization, where people were emancipating themselves from Western client states in the same way that earlier generations had feed themselves from direct Western rule. And although the revolutionaries themselves were using Facebook and working for Google, the politics which they have embraced and which they've unleashed is actually very challenging for the West not just Western interests and the position of Israel in the region, but actually much more fundamental idea of some of the liberal values that that are so central to to the order that I described at the beginning. And I think that uh, as we move on, many of the ideas that we in Europe have thought of as universal are in fact uh, going to be challenged because they're very closely related to our particular history so as power shifts in the world, I think we could see them becoming provincialized. We're already seeing the provincialization of World War II. The, the appeal of, of pooled sovereignty, I think, is very much tied up with our pe- t- peculiar historical experiences in, in this continent. Uh, it doesn't have quite the same resonance outside of Europe. Sometimes it doesn't have the same resonance in Europe, because uh, within 10 years, I think, almost everybody who was alive uh, in World War II will be, will be dead. Uh, which is a natural reason for that to be fading in here. But the, the Holocaust is also being provincialized. I mean, uh, I've got Jewish friends who joke that, that Israel's right to exist will be seen as the white man's burden um, uh, in the in the future. Um, and uh, the whole approach to secularism is obviously clearly related to, to European history and the terrible wars that took place within, within our kind of history. So... Uh, Anyway, as you can see, I think there has been a profound shift across these four different dimensions of of power. Uh, Second thing I wanted to talk about, and I will do this very quickly, but is to think about what all of this means for our ideas of how to preserve and protect this order. And I think at the end of the Cold War, the Western debate on the future of a liberal order was dominated by three key questions. The first was how to integrate the new non-democratic powers like China and international institutions in order to encourage them to become stakeholders of the liberal order. The second question was how to promote democracy uh, as a guarantee for, actually I'll, I'll skip that because um, uh, of, of timing, but the second big question I'll focus on is how to organise the, the unity of democratic countries within those institutions in order to make sure that, that, that we could get our way. And I think together they amounted to a grand strategy of enlarging and strengthening the liberal order. Um, and if what I said in the first part of my talk is right, I think that we need to rethink um, both of those elements of the grand strategy and approach a, uh, develop a different approach to promoting the global liberal order. Because if we start with the, the whole question of integrating uh, powers into our institutions, the assumption is that the power of the institutions is so great that it will eventually socialise authoritarian powers like China to become uh, like us. But I think that uh, it is at least worth questioning whether liberal internationalists are right in their belief that the decline of the coercive power of the West won't negatively affect the nature of the institutional system. I've already given you a few examples of how the relative decline of Western powers has resulted in a a weakening of the liberal agenda in those institutions. And I think this trend in many ways is made more extreme because of the way that America is trying to deal with uh, preserving its leadership for what has been called a post-American world. And on the one hand, I think Americans and the American elite believe very strongly that you can transform rising powers by integrating them into these institutions. And on the other, I think they think that Europe's overrepresentation in the, these institutions is a threat to the consolidation of that order. And that's leading America increasingly to, to turn um, against Europe and to see Europe as, as, as being in the way of the preservation of the, the post-war uh, order. And that means that on a whole number of issues, whether it's on climate change or some of these questions around sovereignty, Uh, you'll see uh, Europe uh, in one camp, the Asians on the other, and the U.S. somewhere in between. And as Walter Russell Mead has written, in general, uh, the U.S. will be more concerned about keeping Asia on board and happy with the world system. So increasingly, it'll be in the American interest to help Asian powers rebalance the world power structure in ways that redistribute power from the former great powers of Europe towards the rising powers of Asia. So the currency of America's accommodation of the new powers will be uh, Europe's uh, place within those institutions, uh, which I think uh, will actually fundamentally uh, damage the liberal nature of those institutions, because I think think that the liberal order, which I described at the beginning, owes much more to uh, to Europe than to anyone else in the world. It's the American security blanket. America might be like the sort of government of this liberal order, but Europe has been like its Supreme Court and has been uh, the source of a lot of these norms and has pushed for them to be embodied in these different institutions. The second question is really how to, to um, uh, uh, organise... Uh, Countries within this order. Because for a long time there was an assumption that uh, democratic countries would uh, um, be uh, in, uh, that there'd be a natural unity of purpose between democratic powers, and that we should therefore uh, find ways of organizing democracies, promoting democracy, because that would uh, help this liberal order. Uh, persist and that's led to various institutional expressions, the community of democracies, McCain's idea of a league of democracies, various other ideas and I think that it's it's pretty clear that um, many of the democratic uh, emerging powers um, uh, have not been great champions for liberal values within within the existing order Um, and that the democratic nature of a regime actually doesn't necessarily Uh, define how it will depend within international institutions and the post-colonial identity of a lot of these powers has been more powerful than uh, their democratic identity. Um, So that means I think that we need to to think about having a a very different approach uh, within these institutions which is based more on uh, interest-driven diplomacy rather than and structuring the interests of other powers so that they will uh, defend liberal values rather than having a faith-based regime that assumes that the engagement of other countries within those institutions will naturally transform them and that they will therefore act as a as a block with a unity of purpose which will help to preserve the, the liberal order. I can talk much more about... Uh, this uh, an alternative kind of normative agenda in the uh, debate and discussion afterwards. But I think I should probably uh, draw my remarks to a close uh, now, um, and say that uh, I think that the the world that we are uh, moving into is one which uh, is going to be profoundly challenging to uh, to to the West and to Western. Uh, Powers, And uh, it's not, unless uh, unless we sort of understand that and the extent to which we're living in in what feels like a a bifurcated world where uh, the pessimism, the austerity, the uh, general uh, decline in the faith of the state that we're seeing in, in Europe is balanced by a sense of optimism, of growth and of power in other parts of the world which will naturally change the sort of institutional uh, expression of the order within which we're living. But um, I do think, and it maybe feels a bit odd, sounds a bit odd to be saying this uh, uh, today of all days, I think Europe is not as weak as many people think it is. It still has the world's largest market. It represents uh, a bigger block of world trade than the US. Uh, It gives away half of the world's foreign assistance. It spends more on defense than almost twice as much on defense as all of the BRIC countries combined. And in a, a geoeconomic world rather than the classic geopolitical world, uh, where the foundation of power is economics rather than simply military might, the EU should actually be able to, to leverage these assets to, uh, to help to shape. Uh, a new uh, world order, which might be less Western but could still have liberal uh, values uh, at its heart, many thank you
0: well, Mark, thank you. You have a, a wonderful uh, way of um, painting the big picture, uh, which is always uh, beguiling um, and uh, uh, you've given us lots of shrewd thoughts and insights, uh, uh, obs- plenty of observations, which I'm sure we we'll want to comment on. That was a, a very rich uh, and stimulating talk, so thank you. Um, up to you how you'd like to take questions. Uh, I'm not a great fan of this sort of this new this. New fashion for bunching um, three often quite substantive questions. Though it does give you the opportunity to ignore one or two of the three you don't like. Uh, I propose to just take short, stic- punchy, staccato um, questions, sort of one by one, if that's uh, if that's okay. Um, if you could uh, just kindly say uh, who you are and what your affiliation is, and as I say, please keep it short and sweet, and wait for the microphone uh, to come round. So, who'd like to uh, kick off? The gentleman? gentleman right at the back. Friendship Highway is a road from Nepal to deep into China.
1: And yet sorry, who, le- are you, who are you? Tell sorry, Ma- you are. Matthew Halliday is the name. Um, I'm just a member of the public coming here. Um, friendship Highway is a road that goes straight from Nepal into deepest China. And yet China says, we have no friends, yet they have all the money. Are they aware of this problem? Uh, are the... Sorry, I didn't quite get the question. Is China aware that it has no friends? Is that your question? Yes, they lament that they have no friends. Um, Well, I think um, that uh, one of the most popular debates in China over the last five or six years has been uh, an academic discussion about soft power. Um, And um, I think that there is a, a growing sense not just in the chinese academy and in think tanks but also in in government that uh, power uh, operates across a whole series of different dimensions all the big think tank foreign policy think tanks in china have lots of indexes where they track chinese power against the power of other countries in the world they developed a, a notion which they call cnp which is comprehensive national power and what was interesting about that is that it has a lot of uh, these softer dimensions in it as well. Um, so I think they are aware of the need uh, for friends. And actually, there are some quite lively debates amongst Chinese academics about whether the, their influence comes mainly from bribery um, and from the fact that they can use material assets to shift other people's opinion, uh, Or uh, and, whether, and there is a discussion about whether um, China needs to, to 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 develop its moral authority, so that uh, it doesn't simply need to. So its, its power doesn't simply rest on these material foundations. But um, I think that you can get quite a long way also just by associating yourselves with big ideas which are attractive and which are popular and have a wider resonance in the world. And I think. A lot of the reason why people in uh, different parts of the world talk about a Chinese model in positive terms is because China has become an incarnation of some ideas which are popular with other people, which is uh, a degree, uh, they do believe in sovereignty and in not being interfered in by international institutions and by foreign powers. They have often posed as defenders of international law and sovereignty against uh, interventionist uh, Uh, powers in other places and they have a very good story to tell about uh economic development they've shown that you can take hundreds of millions of people out of poverty and move them from the countryside to the cities and have done extraordinary things i think that they get a lot of uh credibility out of those uh things but uh they uh, they are also exceptionally good at losing friends and, uh, and alienating people as we saw in 2009, 2010 when uh, a couple of decades of very effective diplomacy within Asia were, were almost destroyed by some uh, belligerent and aggressive behaviour over the South China Sea and over some other regional issues, so maybe they do have uh, some way to go before they fully internalise um, the, the lesson that you were talking about
0: Good, next, uh, yes, gentlemen. There, yes. Uh, thank you for taking my question. So,
1: uh, if I understand uh, uh, Mr. Leonard right, uh, uh, so Europe and America have different opinion about whether uh, the liberal world should integrate the new power in order to transform them if they are not already democratic. So the uh, Europe uh, think uh, they should, but America think they should not. Is that is that the correct understanding? No, I, I think everyone, uh, I think both Europeans and Americans have their foreign policy and their grand strategy over the last two decades has been based on the idea that uh, rising powers should be integrated within the existing institutions. Uh, in order to change them and socialize them and uh, bring them to a position where they saw the preservation of that order as uh, part of their interests, What I, and I think it's the right approach, I don't think there is an alternative, but I think that we maybe have slightly utopian ideas about how powerful the institutions are at transforming the behavior of countries that join them and that actually uh, often, if you just let countries join institutions unconditionally without attaching uh, uh, con- basic ideas to, to, to what kind of contribution they need to make and being sure that they believe in the norms of those institutions. You can end up destroying the institutions rather than socializing the countries. And that, therefore our engagement of rising powers should proceed but we should do it in a more conditional way uh, relate and, and relate participation in institutions to A sense of, of, you know, that that countries will actually make a positive contribution to 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 advancing the goals of those institutions, and uh, that's where I think we've gone wrong. We've also not been particularly good at organising ourselves within those institutions, which is why I dwelled on the UN as an example. It was an institution that used to be seen as an amplifier of, of of kind of Western liberal values, but is now uh, the opposite, and that's partly just because of the incompetence of, of Western powers within those institutions, the fact that our diplomacy hasn't been very good. We spend a lot of time talking to ourselves. There are over 2,000 meetings a year of Europeans just talking to each other in the UN uh, in order to coordinate their positions. As a result, 90 uh, percent of 96 no, no, percent of the time, Europeans vote together. But uh, as their voting has become more and more integrated, they've uh, done less well at influencing other people because a lot of the energy spent talking to ourselves rather than actually winning hearts and minds in, in other parts of the world It seems a bit
0: of a curious patchwork The the UN uh, you're absolutely right, for example the Human Rights Committee It's uh, just become a forum for beating up the West um, and, and Israel in particular um, and that has changed and you gave some uh, an indication of the figures there, it's quite striking but in, 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 in to sort of the other aspects, um, it's been quite surprising. Uh, I mean, China acquiesced without any great enthusiasm, but it acquiesced in, for example, in the responsibility to protect um, being adopted at least as a theological principle in 2005. And that was seen at the time as quite an extraordinary step towards a sort of liberal, obviously, in a broadly liberal interventionist way, or at least acquiescing in a, in, in a Typical real principle of the liberal order, which had never really been effectively enshrined in the UN because the UN was about protecting the sovereignty, respecting the sovereignty of nation states. So um, it seems to be sort of a bit of a patchwork in some areas where, you know, uh, sort of uh, a kind of liberal internationalism is being upheld, in others where there is clearly organization against the West. Um, Anyway, sorry, yes, another question. Yes, um, gentleman in the blue shirt. I'm Georgie Lev, an alum of the LSE, of the LSE master's program on China. My question is on the convertibility of the UN and the dropping of capital controls in the capital account. For a while China was moving quite confidently towards this Western liberal goal. But now it seems in the last maybe one year that it has stalled. Is this because China sees convertibility more as a threat now than before? Um,
1: Well, I think um, whatever uh, China has done has been very gradual, and uh, the timing of announcements on currency is usually related to at least partially to uh, uh, fears of, of of moves in the U S by U S Congress or by other players on, on, treating China as a China as a currency manipulator. So uh, often you'll see positive things happening and then a uh, draw back from them. And then, so, I mean, it's, it's not, I don't think it's been a clear linear uh, process. It's certainly true that the fear of a uh, loss of control is at an all time high within China at the moment. And, uh, the response to the Arab uprisings, uh, uh, it was just the, you know, the latest in, in increasingly frequent convulsions of, 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 of control, um, and in given also the political timetable within China, as people worry about the, the transition to new leaders, they're they're even more on edge than than they are uh, normally. Um, I mean, so yeah, I, it's quite a difficult thing to 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 read exactly where. Uh, China is going to go on currency because you get uh, very mixed messages all the time but I, I, I think that um, one of the big advantages of China's currency policy is that it does give the the state a huge amount of um, of, of control over, uh, over the way that the economy works and that is something which is a central part of the political model as well as the, the economic system of China so I, I suspect we're not going to see a, a rapid move towards compatibility.
0: Thank you. No, That's next, next question. Yes. Uh, lady. Yes. Yeah, Could you, ask, it, you can just help wait for the mic. Just one. Thank you.
2: Hi. Thank you. I was just going to ask um, how does this new international order affect the sustainability of Chinese domestic politics in
0: particular uh, deliberative dictatorship?
1: Um, I think the Part of the part of China's uh, approach to international order has always been a, to pragmatically see where you could take advantage of the existing system. It understands that it does benefit a huge amount from the from American uh, order because America uh, guarantees the security of a lot of Chinese investments in many parts of the world. It keeps the the, the seas. Um, uh, relatively safe and uh, keeps the peace in all sorts of different parts of the world where, where China has uh, invested. China obviously benefits more than anyone else from a multilateral trading system and, and from a lack of protectionism in different uh, places. Um, and uh, the fact that the US is upholding a degree of order around the world allows the Chinese to focus on uh, on their domestic development and upholding <laughs> their, uh, their, their uh, continuing this incredible project of bringing hundreds of millions of people out of uh, rural deprivation and, and, and bringing them into the cities, and that is clearly the, the number one priority for the Chinese. Um, where they uh, uh, are worried about the global governance and the order is, is to the both to the, in two ways, the extent to which it impinges on China's domestic affairs, uh, and the goal is to make sure that happens as little as possible and to do everything you can to 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 um to uh resist uh, um, anything that will curtail Chinese sovereignty domestically and increasingly you know China has got interests in every single part of the world and people uh in every continent in most countries of the world very large numbers of people which means that it is now suffering as a result of the breakdown in the, in the American order and uh, has to face up to some of the dysfunctionalities of global governance. I mean, Libya was a very interesting example where the Chinese had to get 36,000 workers out of the country very quickly uh, when, when the unrest started. And we saw that though China hasn't been a, a very... Ex, uh, Sort of active supporter of the responsibility to protect at uh, the UN, it does feel a responsibility to protect its own citizens, and the Libya example I think um, uh, will be uh, seen as a precedent increasingly as, as as things go wrong in other parts of the world. But you know, if there's a war in Sudan, there are you know thousands and thousands of Chinese uh, in Sudan who would have to be uh, brought out. So I think that China is, is uh, uh, not necessarily becoming uh, a responsible stakeholder in the Zelic sense, but it does kind of have an interest in the preservation of, of, of the system in different parts of the world in order to protect its business, its citizens. And when that fails, it tends to, to go for unilateral measures to, to fix its particular problem as it did in, in Libya rather than or, or doing or bailing out a government rather than necessarily putting money through the IMF um, but you know that might change over time and you could see China becoming a more uh, enthusiastic uh, uh, supporter of, of, of the system if, if its interests are really threatened in parts of the world where that is the most efficient way of, of doing things but I think it'll be done in a very pragmatic case by case thing rather than because the government is a, a great believer in, in uh, the kind of values that under that underpin uh, the 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 uh, liberal institutional
0: order. Thank you, R- Rachel, Rachel Thompson. Uh, the late, sorry, the lady there, and sorry, and then we'll come. <coughs> to, uh, sorry, and then we'll, and then come to you afterwards.
3: will we'll... Thank so, you, sorry. thank you, Morris. Thank you. Um, Rachel Thompson from APCO Worldwide. I'm very interested in what you were saying about the shift to geoeconomics in international um, and multilateral affairs. And I wonder, I mean, I wonder whether particularly on the international economic institutions, Bretton Woods and, and so on, which perhaps always had at least an element of geoeconomics in them if you think that the United States was in nineteen forty five the world's largest creditor nation, though it's not now. Um, that um, you know, can you can you foresee in those organizations or the context of those organizations, issues or scenarios in which BRIC countries might actually come to see that they need those institutions to solve Problems in, of their own arising from their own economic interests um, or regional um, interests, um, so that you know, because it does seem as though it's been sort of about slowing down the evolution of those institutions, um, at least in terms of only pursuing American um, and European interests. And then, and then, secondly, in the UN system, can you foresee or speculate upon particular types of issues, where again, the BRIC countries might, in a fair, you know, in fairly, in the fairly short term, see those institutions as vehicles to advance their own interests, and that sort of interest-driven approach to to, to foreign policy that you're talking about, um, while bearing in mind, of course, that Brazil and India are democracies and. Russia's a notional one, um, and China's
1: not. Thank you. I, mean, I think, in some ways, maybe the the best predictor of what they do is, is uh, might be the way that we've used those institutions. So it's quite striking how uh, little um, Western powers have uh, wanted those institutions to be involved in their own affairs. I mean. Part of being powerful is, in a way, insulating yourself from the Bretton Woods institutions and from the UN. When we, uh, when things happen in Europe and we're kind of worried about them, we'll make sure that it's NATO that is used rather than the UN. After, after Bosnia, uh, there was zero enthusiasm uh, to be involved in any UN peacekeeping missions on our, in our kind of territory. Um, most European countries would much rather not have the IMF involved in their own affairs as well because they've seen these institutions as ways of managing uh, others, mainly people in the third world, in the global south and uh it was interesting how after the Asian financial crisis you know, the first thing which Asian uh, powers started talking about was ways of keeping the IMF out of their affairs with the Chiang Mai Initiative and other kinds of things but so I, I suspect that um the BRICS as they become keener on those institutions will, be, will see them as, as good ways of dealing with others. So they're very enthusiastic about the IMF being involved in, uh, it, well some of them are very enthusiastic about the IMF being involved in, in, in the bailout of the euro zone because it's a way of, of giving Europeans some of the medicine which, um, <laughs> which they feel uh, was doled out to, to them in earlier times and uh so i I suspect that's probably how how it will work but yeah i mean I, I think they're very pragmatic interest based countries so if if that's the best way of uh, of doing it i mean it often isn't because I, Bretton Woods institutions are, are quite bureaucratic and it's quite difficult to do things and if if you'll have particular concerns about a country uh being destabilized, then, you know. Often, it will be easier to do it in a bilateral way by giving a soft loan to the government, and you can extract uh, your conditions in a in a less bureaucratic way. Um, so, but I think they'll, it will be done on a case by case basis. Okay.
0: I'd like to take a couple more questions. Um, so, sort the of lady in the fourth row, um, yes, who I cruelly deprived of. Yes, the three in there. No. In there sorry, yes, no. just that Yes. No. Yes. Uh, sorry, I thought you wa- you wanted to ask a question before, and you said, no, okay, fine, sorry, okay, lovely. Right, we'll get to the gentleman right at the back, and then um, the gentleman in front of him afterwards, and then I, I know he's had his hand up before. Right, right, yes, yes, and then afterwards, Thanks. Uh Niels I study in Masters Management here at the LSE. Um, don't you think, you've raised the question about uh, where Europe will stand in the future within this multipolar world order, don't you think the current um, anti-European or Eurosceptic skeptic um, shift in Britain politics, British politics, um, poses a huge threat to to this position? And um, to us speaking with, uh, me being German, to us Europeans being, um, well, speaking with one voice?
1: Um, yes. <laughs> no, I, I, one of my big, I mean, I think there are all sorts of, things to be deeply worried about in the current european situation but um the most worrying thing will be if the if the euro collapses which is becoming less uh, incredible by the day as a as a as a prospect but um uh but there are some very worrying scenarios where the euro is saved and uh europe splits into a permanent two-speed europe with countries like britain uh uh, marginalized and unable to, to to play a constructive role, which w- I think would not just be a loss for Britain, but would be a loss for Europe because if Europe wants to be a real power in the world uh, it would be much more of a power with the city of London, with British army and with uh, uh, other uh, elements of uh, which Britain I think would bring to a European party uh, within that uh, system rather than on the outside, so I think that, that uh, it would both be bad for Britain and and bad for Europe but that that I think is almost certainly going to happen sadly Uh, that that, uh, that the uh, de facto division uh, between the 17 in the Eurozone and the the 10 on the outside becomes increasingly institutionalized and and, uh, uh, with with I think damaging consequences for both I mean it's less bad as a scenario than the euro collapsing which I think would be calamitous not just for, for, for members of the eurozone but for, for, for the global economy as well um, but uh, it's it is quite something which, which does keep me awake at night
0: The security and defence of Europeans is not mainly assured by the European Union and security and defence of Europeans is being assumed by, by Britain and France and there's no way Britain is going to with withdraw, uh, is going to withdraw from that sphere of activity, which arguably is the most important of all. So um, are you not being overly pessimistic? I think if you think about British
1: foreign policy for the last generation or so, the, the, each of the key elements which we thought of uh, as pillars of our foreign policy is kind of go about to be changed beyond recognition. You know, there's the transatlantic yeah. pillar where the US has signalled very, very clearly to to the rest of the world that its future uh, concerns are going to be in the Pacific rather than the Atlantic. Uh, They will uh, declare victory and withdraw from Afghanistan, from Iraq and seek to spend ever less time focused on Europe and on, on the Middle East and more time focused on the Pacific. We've been hearing that for 30 years. And it's now happening. I mean, there will be half of the American soldiers... You know, uh, almost all the bases are going to get closed down in the next five years. Most of the soldiers will go. And um, uh, I've been very struck at how disciplined Obama's been at not getting sucked into Libya and in uh, keeping the... uh, You know, no matter how awful things are in Iraq, saying that everything's going very well and (laughs) that it's time to go. And uh, I do think that that's going to happen. I think for the EU... Our European policy has been based on an idea of, of Europe, which came about after Maastricht, where we were kind of, which was more or less stable. I think that's fundamentally unstable. I think either the euro uh, will collapse and the EU will break down, or you'll see a very different kind of uh, European Union emerging over the next five years or so, and Britain will have to find a different role within it. And I think the third pillar is, is about European security, where we have been thinking about a European neighborhood and we had an idea of a post Cold War order. I think that that is also being challenged because Russia and Turkey uh, uh, and other powers are playing a very different role within the European space. So it's becoming much more of a multipolar neighborhood than a European neighborhood. And the ways that we thought about it. Uh, which were essentially taking the enlargement model of 1989 and trying to apply that to Ukraine and to Tunisia and other places that kind of doesn't really work very well because uh, the two elements which worked very well with enlargement were that we were offering them something really attractive and secondly they wanted to be like us they wanted to adopt European norms they wanted to transform themselves their national myth was about a return to Europe and I don't think that's true of the existing neighborhood so I, I I think we're in a, going through a, a real flux, and I worry a lot about where British foreign policy uh, uh, is going to go, how Britain defines its role in the world, and my big hope for the future is would be of some kind of G3 world where the European Union got its act together and was able to defend the sort of order I was talking about and uh, match American military power. Uh, and Chinese capital and labor with uh, European technology and a concern for for rules and for the way that things worked. Uh, And that would be my kind of uh, dream scenario for for how the 21st century worked. But I fear that Europeans are not going to get their act together and as a result we're going to get squashed by, uh, we're going to get sandwiched in the G2 world uh, where China and America increasingly... Uh, find ways of engaging with each other, of balancing each other and we are uh, are not uh, even in the room when the big decisions are are taken and I think Britain's relationship with Europe is going to be a key part of that because if you want an outward looking, powerful economically competitive uh, Europe, that's much more likely if Britain is playing a a full uh, role in, in defining the European Union and bringing it together if Britain... Uh, sulks on the sidelines, chooses to become a greater Norway um, I don't think it would be good for Europe any more than it would be good for Britain, but that does seem to be where we're headed at the moment, sadly well,
0: That would be a good in- end note, I don't entirely agree with it but it would be a good <laughs> end note, but I am nevertheless going to keep face with the gentleman at the back of the mauve shirt who and then I will, I'm afraid, have to draw things so i sorry much. for those that haven't paused.
2: Um I just That's want to so. make three points quite quickly, very quickly yes. um, I think the Libyan war is very interesting, because it's the first war where Britain, France, and America fought on the same side since 1945. That's one point, and I think that's significant. Uh, first, um, gulf, first Gulf A second point is perhaps the world as a whole is returning to something like the position in 1500. And if you think about the European sphere, perhaps we'll see a new Ottoman Empire, a new uh, gathering of the lands under Muscovy, etc. The final point is, is the critique that Max Weber... Uh, mounted of Imperial Germany, that uh, the last time a major authoritarian power posed a challenge to a liberal order. And Max Weber perceived that the fundamental weakness of Imperial Germany was its political leadership, that it was essentially, after Bismarck, led by bureaucrats. And they lacked the kind of political skills that people like Lloyd George and Clemenceau had and isn't this a fundamental weakness of the Chinese leadership that they're basically bureaucrats and they demonstrate that this clumsiness in the handling of some of the disputes in in the in their area that you were talking about that alienated most of the other powers? So just three thoughts. Well, I
1: didn't quite catch the second one.
2: Now, what has happened, the significance of globalization is the world is returning to approximately the same kind of economic level. The last time the world was in this position was around 1500, where you had half a dozen major powers, all at approximately the same level of development. And Europe was alongside Muscovy, the Ottoman Empire, Safavid Iran, China, India. It seems to me that we are now returning to that. We're kind of going full circle. Circle, but at a much higher level of economic development.
1: Uh, on the first point, I, um, Morris pointed out the first Gulf War, but there's also Kosovo, Bosnia. There are quite a few wars where we've been on the same side. Um, but uh, on the second point, I think that's, that's true. I think that's the big story of our time, is basically the right of the rest and the ending of the kind of anomalous... Uh, position of leadership, which which Western powers had as a result of of, of the Industrial Revolution, um, and Barry Buzan gave a fantastic um, lecture here about a world without superpowers, which is because he argues that if the gap disappears, then people aren't going to tolerate um, superpowers in the same way that they were before. Which is, I think, quite a convincing argument. And on your third point, uh, I hope you know, I, I hope you'll. You're right that um, that, that um, uh, uh, the democratic liberal order will be saved by the quality of our leadership, but it's a it's a difficult case to make um, at this very second in time when when uh, we're not necessarily proving to be a model of, um, of efficiency uh, and uh, uh, and steadiness uh, as we go through this economic crisis, either either in the states where they had a Bit of local difficulty dealing with their debt seas, uh, ceilings, and uh, and over here where I wouldn't necessarily use the the, the Greek uh, or the Euro crisis as a as a case study of of, of, uh, uh, of decisive uh, leadership. It is true that we're also less likely to make major kind of blunders. Um, I mean, it's certainly true that in China, their big critique of their of their leadership is that it is bureaucratic, it's collective. That they aren't real leaders and they worry that the, that their country has come to the end of the road in terms of its traditional model of economic development and needs to make a major shift and there is a lot of worry about whether the leadership is up to the task of taking on the special interests and actually delivering it and certainly they have struggled to, to move from uh, an export-led economy to one which is driven by domestic consumption in fact domestic consumption has been falling dramatically even during the, the who when years. But uh uh but anyway, I and I would probably have made exactly that argument ten years ago, but I think the it's more difficult to uh, to to make that point now. And and people have pointed out that history is written by the by the winners, which is why um uh when the liberal democratic powers won the second world war we decided that democracy was great and it was the core to our success was in fact it might just be contingent it might just be that that is a nicer way to be governed but isn't necessarily always going to to win maybe Carl Schmitt's uh, views on democracy would have become the conventional wisdom had we not won the second world war Um, I hope that that that's not right but it's difficult to to know particularly at this moment in time, I'm not necessarily going to, to, um, to swear to, 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 to your kind of barbarian critique of imperial Germany.
0: Well, very sadly, um, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to bring things to a close as we're coming up to, uh, to 8 o'clock. Um, Mark, we've had a, a really uh, fascinating, hugely enjoyable an hour, an hour and a half uh, with you. Thank you very much and for answering the question so fully and interestingly for an excellent talk. I hope you'll come back soon. Thank you.